this isn't a shameless plug. It I might know be- exactly what you're going to say. Guess. What do you think? Well, you're going to plug our partner's pro shop. Actually, I was going to talk about myself. <laughs> That's why it's so shameless. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> why are you always thinking about yourself, Nick? You should be thinking about Paul. <laughs> hey, Jason, what's the first thing you think of when I say the word setups? You're not making chips <laughs> yeah, and you're right. not making money. Yeah, exactly. It's one of the biggest battles that can hold you back as a manufacturer. Absolutely. So enter the Lean Setup Guide from ProShop. Okay, what's that? This guide can help anyone, whether you're a ProShop user or not, but ProShop users have experienced a 50% reduction in setup time because the software builds these lean principles into their process. Yeah, so it's a totally free download. You can go to ProShopERP.com slash 50 and you can get your copy of the Lean Setup Guide. Bam. Jason, you know how you're a wannabe professor? Well, I guess. I mean, I wouldn't call myself a wannabe, but... Well, the voiceover lady Chelsea calls you a wannabe That's true. She does. Right? And I think we have a class today. So what is it? I think it's going to be Automation 101. Talent is scarce. Experience even more so. Driving up costs and sleepless nights. You may even think to yourself, can I do this? But this new era brings new technology and a different perspective on your operations. What you will hear will turn on a light bulb in your mind so you can turn out the lights in your shop. Get ready to sleep soundly while your shop never stops. Get ready for Making Chips Lights Out with your hosts, Nick Golner and Jason Zanger. Welcome to Making Chips Lights Out, where we will equip and inspire you to multiply your production, your competitiveness, and your money while your machines are running unattended. We have a very special guest today who will take us through Automation 101. And of course, I have my co-host with me, Nick Goldner. Yeah, How you yeah doing, thanks. Buddy? I'm so glad the guest is taking us through the class because I was hoping for a substitute it's teacher. It's not going to be me. <laughs> yeah, I didn't need it to be you. So... Who do we have? How do we get going here? Before we even get into that, Nick, I'm going to tease it out a little bit. Ooh, but tease me, Jason. When did your company start getting into automation and why? Well, it depends on how you define automation. Right? Okay. So if you go back to the episode with Titan, like there's a lot of things that are considered automation that have nothing to do with a robot. But what we're doing now is we're actually integrating and implementing and servicing automated pallet delivery systems. And that's just a evolution from the custom fixturing and the hydraulic clamping and unclamping that we've been doing for a long time. And it's all part of the throughput equation. How do I get more quality parts per day? So I think the official launch of our machining automation business unit was IMTS right around there. Okay. So Yeah. And for us, as automation is like kind of one of the most popular topics in manufacturing, there's a lot of products on the marketplace. And our role is we're also selling automation products. We're partnering up with you guys yeah, in a lot yeah. of situations and we're selling the RoboJob USA product. Yeah. For and, the machine tending. Yep, yep. Exactly. And we just feel that there's so much out there and there's a lot of not great systems out there too. And we feel like our role in the marketplace is going to be to make sure that our customers understand the products that they're buying and what's going to be best for their application. Because we've seen a lot of bad installation of robots, actually. I don't yeah. know if you have, but and we fixed some of those too. Well, it's funny you say that because I think when we work together that we could both say this to our customer, what you're going to buy is a solution, not a project. Exactly. We're going to take a lot of that project off of the shoulders of the end customer. So You got it. 
So in this episode of Making Chips, we're going to discuss the basics of automation with another manufacturing podcaster. But before we get there, I want to discuss some manufacturing news that I put together. So we haven't done manufacturing news in a while, but I think it's good for us to bring that back in. The global manufacturing industry is full of twists and turns. But what does it mean for you? The Making Chips hosts have hand-selected the latest news, and they're about to give you their perspective. No hot takes, no political garbage. Just commentary from the perspective of a manufacturing leader. This is MWMN, Metalworking Manufacturing News. Okay, so what's the news? What do you got? So this was from the National Association of Manufacturers. NAM. NAM. Back in NAM. Is it NAM or NAM? <laughs> I don't know. Is it tomato or tomato? I, I think forgot it's which NAM. one. So Jay Timmons, the CEO of the National Association of Manufacturers, was interviewed. And I thought that this some of the information that came out of this was valuable to bring to the metalworking nation. So for this first one, I'm going to read this verbatim that came out of the article. This was on Yahoo Finance. And they asked him, how big of an impact do you see AI being in the sector going forward? And his response was, I actually think it's going to be an incredibly positive impact on the sector because it is going to enhance manufacturing capability and output, and it's going to be a supplement to jobs all across the world. So you think about all the technological advances we've had over the course of the last few decades, but especially the last five to 10 years, all of these advances have given additional capabilities to the workers who we have. And in fact, we've expanded the number of manufacturing workers in this country by over a million in the last few years. That's pretty yeah, incredible. Yeah, the automation and if you think doesn't about take it, your job. The exactly. AI doesn't take it's your like job. CNC machine tools didn't take your job either. So, right, right. And his other point was, I represent manufacturers in the United States. I'd like us to make everything in our country, but it's just not feasible. It's not possible. Critical minerals, for one, we simply don't mine them in the supply that we need in the United States. So we rely on supply from other countries. So at that time, he was actually traveling. I think he was in Europe and he was, I believe, just working on trade relations with a lot of other countries in order to make sure that our USA supply chain was secure and robust and that we could get the supplies that we needed to. So I guess one of the other interesting things about this article was that NAM created a report where they found out that three quarters of its members listed attracting and retaining quality workforce as a primary business challenge, which obviously we've talked about this on Making Chips So many times. But what I found was interesting is that he went on to outline five different programs to address that shortage. Number one, attracting more women into the manufacturing workplace. We've been talking about that on Making Chips since like 2015. Yeah. And despite that, there's still a huge gender gap in manufacturing. Number two, what they call second chance hiring, which I really like this. So for those who have been incarcerated for a nonviolent offense, to move them into productive members of the workforce. Yes. Number three, apprenticeship programs, which I know you and your family are very familiar with. You have your own apprenticeship program at your shop. It's a huge part of how we're able to do what we do today. Exactly. Number four, they actually put together manufacturing programs on military basis, which I think is is great. I think veterans are just would be great candidates to come into the manufacturing industry. And then they have a program called Creators Wanted, which is designed to inspire the next generation of the manufacturing workforce. That is really cool. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So you want me to introduce our guest? Yeah. Without further ado. Okay. He's no stranger to a microphone. He's right? not. I had to teach him how to turn this particular microphone on, <laughs> but we we won't hold that against him. No, he's no stranger to a microphone. So our guest today is Chris Lukey. He is the host of Manufacturing Happy Hour, 
which is also a manufacturing podcast. He is a brewery connoisseur. Would you consider yourself that? And he is a salesperson in the automation space of manufacturing. Perfect. So welcome to Making Chips, Chris. So good to have you. And yeah. I'm looking forward to the happy hour, right? Yeah. And we have a happy hour starting in just a couple hours. Yeah. So we got to get some Chris. work done first. We got to go to class first before we can drink. It's like yes. college. Yeah. It's good to be here. I feel like I'm getting a behind the scenes like seat to like the pre-show banter that I've been <laughs> used to listening to yes. on the show yes. for years. Yeah. Well, it's kind of funny, Chris. You could probably make a comment on this, but we get and we've talked about this. We've been transparent about this on the show before, but we've gotten some feedback that there's a lot of people that love the banter. And then there's a lot of people that are like, would you guys stop bantering? Just yeah. get to like, the I wanted to go to Automation 101 and not listen to you guys clown around for nine minutes and 44 seconds, yeah, exactly. which is where we're at right now. So <laughs> it's interesting. <laughs> so what's your right? thoughts on that? As a podcaster, it was one of the things that drew me to listening to your show early on, because okay. if I think about the content that was like in the manufacturing world and the automation world, like five or six years ago, a lot of it was really dry. Right. And I thought you guys did a great job of bringing in your personality, bringing in, and I think the banter is constructive a lot of times, right? You know, yeah. you do the manufacturing news and things like that, and it was a way to kind of ease into the episode, right? And my philosophy always is, hey, if someone wants to jump ahead and get to the meat, there's a fast forward button on yes. the podcast. Yes. You can yeah, skip exactly. ahead five minutes. It's not hard to get. And the there. show yeah. notes tell you, like, if you have good show notes, which most podcasts that are worth anything do... You can just say like at four minutes and 28 seconds, they're going to start talking about what I came to hear. Exactly. Whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, I think it's cool to see everyone's different podcasting style because you guys do the intro with your guest present. I always kind of do it after the episode's done. And I say, hey, here are three things you can expect from the episode. Boom, boom, boom. Because I always like, I think what you guys do a great job with, and I think the people that have been doing podcasting for a while is setting expectations on what an episode is going to contain. Yep. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. One of the things publicly we talk about that our mission is to equip and inspire manufacturing leaders, but kind of like not publicly, we always say we want to entertain as well because we want this to be enjoyable to listen to. It's like you can get this type of information in a lot of different ways and we want it the experience of learning and being inspired to also be entertaining. And I brought on a full-time clown and my co-host Nick <laughs> just to help with that. And sometimes we do crazy things. Like we're about to record some episodes where we're going to eat incredibly oh, hot gosh. hot sauce with yeah. our buddy Tony Gunn. I know. So that's already, I'll just tell you right now, that's a bad idea. Yeah, we put ourselves through pain for you, Metalworking Nation. <laughs> okay, so let's get into this. Chris, tell us, how did you get your start in manufacturing? This is one of the things we always ask our guests is, what is your manufacturing story? Yeah, so I jumped in right out of college and I had no idea I was going to go this route. So I got an engineering degree from Marquette University. Mechanical or? Mechanical. Mechanical yep, engineering. Yeah. Okay. So graduated 2009 and it was a recession, but I was lucky to have found a job that really seemed to fit what I was looking for at the time, because one thing I learned while I was getting my engineering degree was there was a lot of time behind the desk as an engineer, and you're spending a lot of time by yourself as an engineer. Obviously, you're interacting with people along the way, right? But one of the things I realized was, hey, I'd love to do something that's a bit more like frontline customer facing. And when I got my engineering degree, I had no idea sales engineering was even a path that I could go. But it was actually an internship that turned into a full-time job where I was in the engineering organization and learned that Rockwell Automation also had a sales engineering organization, which was brand new to me at the time. And I'm like, hey, this sounds great. I get to use my problem-solving skills. I get to help out customers. And 
It's a great way to kind of get the best of both worlds was the way I looked at it. So my first job out of college was becoming a sales engineer for Rockwell Automation. That exposed me to the automation world. And I moved down to Houston, Texas to start my career that way. I want to say something before you continue to anyone who's listening who has anything to do with academia. You said, I didn't even know sales engineering was a path that I could follow. And it is a great path. And if you have a program at your university or if you know somebody who has some influence over that... Like, yeah, engineers can get into sales. Engineers can get into aspects of the industry where they're talking to people and they're very collaborative and they're not just sitting behind a computer tinkering. Not that there's anything wrong with that. We need them too. But I'm looking for a sales engineer right now and I'm trying to figure out, okay, like, is there a great school that has a great sales engineering program? Yeah, there actually is. So, but before I tell you what school that is, and Chris, you might have some input on this too. So, I studied engineering, chemical engineering in my undergrad, and I decided that I didn't want to be an engineer because I knew that I wanted to interface with people and not be in a factory floor. And I didn't realize that there was a sales engineering job either, or else I might have pursued that. So one of the things I do know, so me being in the cutting tool supply business, Texas A&M has a, they have an industrial supply program and they have a sales engineering program Texas that A&M. goes along with it. Is that what you were going to say? Well, it's funny, right? I started my career in Houston and like half of the industry that I worked with came out of the industrial distribution or sales engineering program at Texas A&M. And the other thing I think that was 10 years ago when I started, I think things have improved, right? I think we're seeing a number of people getting more real about education, right? Exposing people to the different fields that an engineer can get into, as well as I think you're no stranger to it either. The comeback of trades as well. People are seeing that, hey, I don't necessarily need to get a four year degree to have a respectable career. It's a process, right? But I think we're seeing, let's say, right sizing or course correcting in education as we go. Sure. Okay. So you went to Texas, oil and gas. Oh, yeah. Oil and gas, chemical. I mean, you can imagine what working in the industrial world is like there. And a lot of big projects that would leave the Texas market as well. You got a lot of engineering firms down there. I mean, what, fourth, third largest city in the country, depending on what year you look at it. So I would say my sales career started as more of like an elephant hunter, if you will, looking for those big projects. Okay. And you were selling automation products through Rockwell. And I would say more like solutions at the time, right? Big project solutions rather than like when I moved out to California five years into that, I was definitely doing more working with equipment manufacturers, selling more the pieces and parts that would be like repeat business. But it was kind of an interesting complete flip of what I had been doing, right? I was in a market where selling a lot of project type solutions and I go to selling like the pieces and parts. So I've seen a couple different sides yeah, of it. There is quite a difference in those two different like sales dynamics. Can you tell us just real quickly, give us an idea of what the project type sale was? What did you sell? What was the thing? Sure. So we're talking like control systems for offshore rigs and things like that, or large motor control center lineups. These are Big, for those of you that aren't familiar with electrical engineering, like these are things that could go to projects that are shipped off to, I don't know, North Dakota over to Pennsylvania, for example, or halfway across the world, right, where you're putting a lot of this electrical equipment in a single box that's going to go to a new greenfield site, for gotcha. example. So those were a Are these examples. like six-figure projects at the end of the day, seven-figure projects? Sometimes yes to both? Absolutely, yes. Six, seven figures were the type of thing. So for me, it was really interesting going from, let's say, a big project here, a big project there type sales cycle to more of kind of the annuity business that I moved into after that. And this is in California now. So now we're 
moving beyond Texas and into California. Yeah. So California, I was working with equipment manufacturers and California was where manufacturing happy hour really got started because I grew up playing in bands and I was promotions director at my college radio station. I knew I enjoyed being behind the camera or in front of the camera, I should say, or on a microphone. And I also knew there was a necessity of a new way I needed to reach my customers. Like in Texas, a lot of face-to-face meetings, handshakes, relationships. That's how business gets done. California, everyone has their perceptions of the Bay Area, right? Bunch of 20, 30-year-olds like running around wearing hoodies, making decisions. And there's a lot of truth to that, right? And I was in my late 20s at the time when I moved out there. So my thought was, okay, business done a little differently out here. If I'm a salesperson, how am I going to reach my audience? I'm like, well, I'm a millennial. I'm their age. How do I consume content? Podcasts, videos. So I set up Manufacturing Happy Hour started as like a short form video series that was more, let's say, Automation 101, right? Talking about product or solution for three minutes on a video, upload it to YouTube, email that out to my customers. And it's like, here you go. That's really creative. And I love it. So did you just say you were in a band? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So what kind of music? He's a Green Day guy. I, I do remember that. Yeah. Right? Green Day, Blink, Pop Punk is in my blood. Yeah. And okay. It yeah. still is. It's probably still my favorite thing in the world. Yeah. It was always cover bands. I mean, I'll just give you a sampling of my high school band was called the Atomic Monkey Project, which I would still <laughs> contend is the best name you could ever pick for a high school band. <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. When I moved to Houston, I joined a band. I was in a, probably the most professional band I ever played in. That was called Hyde Park. We were playing in clubs. We were actually getting paid. Let me put it that way. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Well, then you're a professional if you get paid to do something, right? I guess so. But I still think the most fun was like playing in a band in college where you play your college bar and all your friends show up, right? Even if you're playing for like a pitcher of beer that night. Did you ever listen to, I don't know if we talked about this, Screeching Weasel? Oh yeah, they're Chicago band. Yeah, I know. I know. Screeching Weasel. I mean, I used to go to the Metro, which is actually down the street from my house now, and the Aragon Brawl Room, which is actually the ballroom. And punk bands, mosh pits. I remember, oh, I'm trying to think who, I mean, seen some great bands in both those places. But yeah, Screeching Weasel was always at the top of my list as far as punk bands, especially since they were Chicago. So yeah. Chicago is a great punk heritage. Yeah. You know, like even into the 2000s, your Fallout Boys, Alkaline yeah. Trios. I'm a regular Riot Fest attendee as well. Oh, it's really? not a long drive from Milwaukee to come here. <laughs> oh, very cool. There's another Chicago kind of like, not punk, not necessarily punk, but kind of punk, hardcore band from the south side of Chicago, it'll occur. I'm going to try to Google it and try to see if I could figure out who it is. So while he looks for that, so your inspiration for being in front of a camera, having a microphone in your hand was like, I can do this. I don't get the crazy stage fright thing because I've been doing music, right? Yeah. I mean, I think I was used to it, right? I still get a little nervous before I jump behind a microphone or jump on stage, but that is one of my favorite parts about it because it's good nerves, right? You want to go up there. You want to do a good job. You want to deliver for the audience, whether it's- I still have a little bit of that too. It's like the more you do it, the less it's there, but yeah, I hear what you're saying. And one of my favorite parts, and I think I sense this every time I do a podcast as well. It's like you're nervous for like that first song or that first few minutes, but then you just get into the groove and then yeah. it starts flowing. Like yeah. there are a couple interactions, you're looking for the people nodding their head. And then once it's in there, you can just start to flow. It takes some experience, right? But that's the way I look at that whole process of jumping on stage behind a mic. So when you started Manufacturing Happy Hour, it was your project. It was not like under Rockwell. Yeah, it was one of these. I mean, I was doing it in my spare time, right? right? I think one advice I would give to anyone that's starting, let's say, like a project like that when they're working for a large company, 
get your managers buy-in, get right? Permission. Like yes. give people a heads up. But I'm like, hey, this should help my customers, right? Yeah. It's not going to take away from my job. If anything, it's just more work I'm taking on, but it's not going to stop me from updating my funnel, from going to see customers and things like that. I think that's advice I would give to anyone, right? Because people are always like, how can I start something like this? I work at a big company. It's like, just get buy-in from some of the right people yeah, before so you get going. What advice would you give to the manager if the next Chris Lukey comes up to him and says, hey, I want to start a YouTube channel or a TikTok or whatever the heck people want to start. You're the manager and you might have some apprehensions like, I'm not so sure about this. This is new. So what advice would you give to that person? Yeah. So on the flip side of that, it's funny, right? Because I'm usually the one starting stuff and asking for forgiveness rather than permission first. What I would do in that case, I would be like, hey, how would you think this is going to help your current customers, right? Really saying this from a sales perspective, or how do you think this, yes, it is more work you're taking on. Do you think there are ways this could be additive to the current job you're doing? And if that individual can articulate some things where it's like, you know what, this could be an enhancement to their role, right? Like, that's the type of thing that would make me say yes, where, hey, it's not, I'm going to spend 20 hours a week doing my day job and 20 hours a week doing this project. It's like, I'm going to experiment with this, right? I think that's a thing we're seeing with a lot of companies these days, being open to this type of experimentation. And if it can help out, all the more reason to give it a nod. Well, and it's like you and I, Nick, I know going back to the very beginning of making chips. I had to get permission from my boss, my dad, in order to be like, okay, I want to do this on company time. And he's like, what the heck is a podcast? But he trusted me that I was making the right decision for my role. And I know you probably have that same and it conversation with, with what your the dad. Heck is a podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what the heck is a podcast? In both cases, the, the green light happened and yeah. we probably would have done it anyway. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, um, if you're listening to this and you've got some millennials that you're like, all right, how do I get the most out of this generation? That's kind of foreign to me. Being flexible and allowing for their creativity and thinking about, like you said, Chris, how could this help? And then asking them to back it up. So they could back it up by, well, I'm learning a lot. I'm educating myself. I'm getting our brand more exposure. I'm getting conversations started that have le led to a sales opportunity. So like, I do think there's something to be said about like, I'm going to start a podcast about donuts or something. What the heck does that have yeah. to do with manufacturing? Yeah. yeah. And for me, it's always been about developing relationships, developing those personal relationships like we have now. So let's get into automation. So I want to make an analogy here and... I guess you could say that it's a kind of part of automation, but machine monitoring data collection is all the rage right now, just like automation is all the rage. And going back to one of our guest hosts, Mike Payne, he was telling us how when he was in his couple decades ago, happy birthday, Mike. So he was telling us when he was in his 20s, he was doing data collection for manufacturing companies. It's just that those projects were million dollar projects. They weren't like... They were elephants. They were elephants. They weren't like, just let's plug something in and pay 20 bucks a month and you could start collecting data. Now, in that same regard, automation is all the rage right now too. But automation is not new. It's not like somebody just came up with automation right now. So why do you think that it is such a popular topic nowadays? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, I like the way you phrased it. One reason I think we're maybe hearing more about automation, because you're totally right. It's been around for decades, yeah. like the PLC-5, like that antiquated controller, which is still running lots of factories, by the way. It was like 1985 or something like that. But there, I think one of the reasons it's big now, and this is a bit of the world, according to Chris, is that I think we're seeing more of this crossover between like the tech world and the manufacturing world, where People are realizing if manufacturing, particularly if manufacturing in North America is going to be successful moving forward, we need to step in to the 21st century. And if we're going to be 
attractive to millennials and Gen Z that are coming out of school. We need to have a factory or a facility that looks high tech and is high tech because that's what people are used to using, right? We're used to running our lives through the screens that we have on our personal devices. So if I'm a young person stepping into a facility, a factory, a manufacturing site, I'm going to want to see those same things there. So I think it's becoming more the expectation. Again, a crossover between tech and the manufacturing world. This is coming from the perspective of someone that lived in the Bay Area. But also the fact that, hey, we realize we are having some labor issues right now. If we're going to attract the next generation, we need to have this technology there. And by the way, you need connected systems. You need automation if you're going to be competitive. It's not just about getting the people. It's about being competitive in business moving forward. So you're saying that the kids in the hoodies in Silicon Valley are recognizing manufacturing as a industry that they want to be involved in. They're already involved in it in well, they some are, ways yeah. too, right? If yeah. you look at like where Tesla, for example, out in California, where right. do you think they were pulling their talent from? It was from oh, yeah. all the tech companies that yeah. weren't necessarily and it's doing ripe manufacturing. For investment too. Like these VCs are looking at the manufacturing tech startups and they're like yeah. running towards that. So going back to making chips started and probably when manufacturing happy hour started, one of the other things that we talked about all the time besides workforce was how do we make manufacturing cool so that we can attract those younger people. So does that mean we accomplished it? I mean, did we do it? <laughs> I think we're on the right steps of the journey yeah. as we're doing this. Honestly, you probably resonate with this as well. That was one of my main goals with manufacturing, right? Back in, I guess, 2016, when I recorded my first video on my iPhone, manufacturing wasn't cool, but I'm no. just kind of looking at it. And I'm like, this has a lot of potential. And maybe it's because I was drinking the Bay Area Kool-Aid for a year and a half by this point. But I'm like, hey, if we do something where we make manufacturing look approachable, like where you can talk about these tech topics over a beer Mm -hmm. and uh, do it on video, do it on podcasts. And also, hey, it's just the reality of the facilities I was seeing at that point. I mentioned starting my career in Houston, Texas, a site in the Houston Ship Channel looks a lot different than a site in Fremont, California, for example. So I'm starting to see the tech on all this equipment, the automation equipment that I'm selling. I'm like, there's something here. I don't think I was a visionary per se. I think I was just around like a lot of people that were doing that work. I'm like, I just got to start communicating this out there. And I've spent my career as like a regional sales guy a lot. And my thought was, hey, if I start sharing this on LinkedIn and things like that, other people outside will see this. Yeah. Nick also mentioned the elephant. And when I think about automation 10 years ago, I think about an automotive facility and you see that highly calibrated automation and you see they must have spent a hundred million dollars on this automation that's an elephant and then you go to automation now where you might just be buying a hundred and fifty thousand dollar machine to do machine tending or you might be buying some kind of pallet system you think budget probably has something to do with it, I imagine. Yeah, there are a couple data points here. It's a great point to bring up because one thing people often point to is the costs of sensors, like IoT sensors, for example. They're like, if you look back in 2004, I think a sensor costs like a buck 44 or something. And now I think it's like in 2018, that price had dropped to 44 cents, Okay, right? So we're looking at like 
33% of what that cost used to be for a particular component, right? But we're also seeing new business models now. Like if you look at robotics as a service is a big one. Machine as a service. We hear this more because that's a way to move what would have been a CapEx expense in the past to a operations expense at that point. And there are a lot of different companies that are doing this for their own niche, like robotics for welding, robotics for machine tending, robotics for warehouse and logistics, right? There are a lot of different examples where people are implementing these RAS models, as they're called, robotics as a service in their respective niches. And I think that's where we're starting to see some more accessibility to automation. You're subscribing to the service, essentially. You're not buying a capital expense. You're basically subscribing to this service. Then, Yeah, so, tell us how that would work. Yeah, like how does that work? I've seen it work a couple ways, right? So you can do like, let's say, an AMR, for example. What's that acronym? Autonomous Mobile Robot. Autonomous Mobile Robot, right? If you were to get an So autonomous- you got C-3PO driving around your shop doing things. Exactly, like a warehouse robot that would move around picking parts and moving them to different parts of the factory. I've seen leasing models, for example, which people can picture what renting and leasing looks like. Or in the case of production, one of the things I think is really cool is you're paying for the output or the parts. So if your machine were to make, I don't know, a thousand widgets in one day, the fee to have that machine there is basically a fraction of the cost of each of those parts, right? So what happens- So you're paying for the result. You're paying for the result, which I thought was really cool when I first came across that model because it incentivizes both, let's say, an equipment manufacturer- or the robotics company that's leasing that out to make sure that thing is functioning the way it's supposed to, as well as the end user versus in a traditional model where it's like, here's your piece of capital equipment. See you later. Call us if there's a challenge. There's a, probably the largest laser manufacturer in the world is doing that. They call it pay per part. And so you don't have to buy the equipment. They put it on your floor and you pay for the output. It is an interesting model. I know that I've seen applications, even in my industry, a little bit different where you're selling the tools and you're charging the customer based on your cost savings that you're rendering to them. There's some issues associated with that, just like there would be some issues associated with that. similar ideas around Yeah, yeah. There's some stuff where you can put into it. But I mean, I would just think, why would you pay that monthly fee if you could just own the product? But I don't know. Well, I think an easy example is like, I'm a beer guy. So if you think about like craft breweries that might not be able to afford like a canning line, you can like rent that canning line for certain periods of time. So I think it's just, you're looking at your P&L and you're figuring out what makes sense for a facility of our size. Does it make sense to rent this out for a day every month or however many days a month you need it? Or do we just invest it and get it on our own? Yeah. I mean, well, also reminds me, my wife and I were part of like wine clubs out in California. And I know one of them, Smith and Devereaux, it's great wine, by the way, and very approachable and affordable. They don't own their own vineyards. They will blend it themselves, but they don't actually have the vines. So I guess it's kind of along that same analogy. So I know that the business model design is like where I love to play, but we're going back to Automation 101 here for a second. And I think you guys (laughs) hit the nail on the head. There's two things. There's as the skills gap widens, which it's happening, right? It's not getting better. It's widening. And so there you have your headwinds and then you get the tailwinds of automation being easier to implement, more accessible and more affordable. So that like leads us to why, why we're seeing such an increase in smaller companies that don't have to invest in the elephant implementing more of the automation. So a lot of those people a lot of those leaders would be our audience. 20 machine shops, 50 person shops. There's big companies that listen to making chips too, but you got the tailwinds and the headwinds and it's all working together to promote the automation. So it's like, okay, 
everyone has some form of automation. If you have CNCs, you have some form sure. of yeah. automation. But what are some of the first things that they need to consider in a 101 type class? First things to consider in a 101 automation class. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm a machine shop and I'm like, all right, I'm going to 101 because I want to start diving in. What are the starting points for me? Yeah. So spending more of my time outside of the CNC world, I might not be able to give you the perfect answer. Any manufacturer though. That's good. Yeah. I hate to say it, but probably the easiest way is look for these base level classes, right? Like getting someone familiar with the type of interface you're using. I think about back to my college days as well. You're stressing that, yes, you're learning a particular system, but you're also learning the general methodology, right? Once you learn ladder logic on one, you've got an idea of how to do it on many of the other systems, right? So you're getting someone introduced to those core areas is what I would say. Just the basics of what programming methodology looks like and the mindset that it would take to get in there. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think I would add to that and what some of the commenters, when I was teasing this new series, saying, hey, what do you guys want to hear about? Two of the commenters, one made a point and the other one said, absolutely. And that was, if you don't have a stable process, don't add automation. Until you can standardize and stabilize a process, adding automation is just going to like add chaos. So before you're even implementing automation, make sure you have standards and a stable process that that's the prerequisite for automation. Completely agree. And I think when we talk about whether it's automation 101 or like digital transformation, which I look at as like a widespread application of automation, we say people process technology. Make sure you have the people right first, then the processes, and then you apply the automation, the technology at the end. I think one thing when I think of automation is it's a great way to, let's say, promote from within, right? If you have someone working the line, it's a great way to give someone a job that becomes more fulfilling. So when I think back to, hey, why are you sending someone to training? What are you learning during that training? I think the most important thing I would look at is automation or we hear these roles like robot wranglers. Now, people that are responsible for the robotics within the facility, I like that. making sure they're working. <laughs> That's a role. I love it. Yeah. People have different. I'm trying. Robot Sherpas is another term. I like I've the wrangler because I just imagine like a millennial in a cowboy hat. <laughs> I have a friend who has a bumper sticker with that on there. Oh, I will I need it. to track one of those down yes, for you. Yes. Instead of HR, you can call it RR. Yeah. <laughs> the robot wranglers. No, I was thinking like robot. I was going to say, human isn't resources. wrangler a dummy? Robot resources. Oh, or robot yeah, resources, yeah. sure. Yeah. I'm sure robots are going to start complaining eventually. Yeah, you got to make sure they have more benefits, benefits, time and, off, yeah, oh, flexible yeah. work schedules. That'll happen. <laughs> Before we get to robots complaining about time off and benefits and things like that, though, I do think one of the more powerful things with them is kind of back to that point, right? If you want to promote from within, if you want to give someone a more fulfilling job, these are great ways to do that. I think getting someone into an automation role where they're using their mind and they're figuring out how can I make this process, as you were talking about, Nick, how can I make it run better through automation? That's what keeps someone around. That's what keeps someone excited about their job because now they're not just doing the manual work on the equipment. They're the ones figuring out they have some level of ownership. They're like, how can I make this do this even better now that I have this new tool, this robot, this automation technology in front of me. So he's a pro because he answers the question before you ask it. And the next question I was going to ask is, what about this automation is going to take the jobs out of my company? I'm a business owner. I want to create jobs for people. You just hit on it. You can create jobs that implement automation and make you more profitable. No one wants the job where your job is to push a button and open a door and close a door. Nobody wants that. Yeah. And most of those people that are button pushers is you hear them being referenced. 
they're smart enough to be able to learn something else. Yeah. And they need yeah, to just believe be in given, your people. Yeah. They need to be given the opportunity and they will do it. Yes, exactly. And I have yet to hear any company say it's like, oh, we don't need people right now. Like we know it's like 2 million, 1.8 million, whatever the specific number it is, right? By 2030, that's how many jobs are supposed to be open and unfilled. And we're already seeing the start of that right now where people are like, I can't find the programmers. I can't find the people that have the skills that I need to run my plants right now. So until we have that problem solved, I don't even think we need to worry about automation taking jobs. Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, I kind of feel bad because one of my new applications account managers knows how to program Fanuc robots. And I feel bad that I've taken him off of the uh, possibility of being able to do that in the future because yeah. <laughs> he's working. Well, look, I mean, part of that goes to the solutions that you sell yeah. too. Like uh, I'm going to be promotional for Zengers for a second, but you sell the Trinity solution, <laughs> yeah. which you don't have to do a lot of programming. There's some learning, of course. Yeah. But it's like an out-of-the-box solution to a problem, not a project. There you go. And same thing with the mobile job. When you get a tour of that place, they make you program a robot. I know. I programmed a robot. Because it takes you 10 minutes and you're like, yeah, Yeah. okay, this isn't hard. Have you ever programmed a robot, Chris? Just briefly. I've used some of the new tools that are out there where it's like the programming is kind of done for you. It's more pictorial, the way you put them together. The way that you can program a robot nowadays, I mean, it's just so easy and it makes it so you go from like installation to utilization in five minutes. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. It really is. No code or low code yeah. or whatever. Yes, yeah. no code, low and code. And whether it's pallet delivery, like the Trinity system or machine tending, like RoboJob, it's still both very easy, very easy. Yep. Sometimes people think when you're moving the work piece, you got to do more programming and and you know who hard. comes up with those ideas the people that were doing the automation for a while yeah. that were on the lines before that are constantly figuring out new and better ways to yeah. do things yeah. Yeah, absolutely exactly. so we talked about this a little bit before we started recording what is itot convergence and why is that important in the automation discussion well when an it loves an ot oh you is know that how it works yeah and they come together and next thing you know you have some convergence <laughs> you'll have to teach your kids about this someday <laughs> you can give them the talk. I actually, we talked about this. I did have to have the... You put me on the phone during the talk with your son. <laughs> so just to give some context to the Metalworking Nation. I called in. I'm like, hey, man. They were, they were teaching health class. And I pulled my son out of health class because I didn't like what they were teaching. I felt that it was my role as his dad to teach him the anatomical parts of the human body and how they work. Yeah, so and... I call him and I'm like, hey, dude, let's talk about some business stuff. And then he's like, well, you're in the middle of something and I got to participate. I was like, Nick, it. just be quiet for a minute while I talk to like, my I'm just going to hang up. I'll call you later. <laughs> well, I was giving you a little preview for when your son gets turns. Okay, back to 101. We're getting to the health Sorry, class. Wow. <laughs> you definitely simplified ITOT convergence with that analogy. I wish it were that easy. I wish it were that easy. So before we get to that, I'm going to talk digital transformation. Okay. Because okay. I think that is the buzzword that people hear the most. And for anyone listening that might not be familiar with Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast that I do, one thing I didn't necessarily share was the reason I started it was like to squash buzzwords and all these things that are just thrown around, but we don't necessarily get definite. On. So everyone knows industry 4.0, but they have no idea what 1.0, 2.0, or 3.0 are. Yeah. <laughs> That's just an example. And yes. I think the Metalworking Nation wants to hear, like, how do you define some of those buzzwords if they hear them out there? So, yeah, please. And transfer, I would say digital transformation, it's really about transformation. It's how do you get your company from point A to where you want it to be in the future? And you're just happen, you're using automation and digital tools to accomplish okay. that. Right. So, Hey, do you need more capacity? Do you need to integrate your ERP systems because you've got a bunch of different facilities that you've acquired over the years and you need one 
scalable software to time together so you can improve quality, have improved capacity. Start with the goal, right? But a lot of times, IT, OT convergence, bringing together your business systems, your ERP and OT, all the data and information that is on a factory floor, that's how you're accomplishing digital transformation. Okay. So it's like, I always say everything starts with a vision. So like you need to create that vision for the future. And that's all you're saying that that transformation is, is like, what is that vision of how I want to transform my company? And even if it's something like, well, I want to be paperless in the future, that could be part of that digital transformation. Exactly. Exactly. I just have to give an example. This isn't a shameless plug. It I might know be, exactly what you're going to say. Call me a shameless plug. Guess. What do you think? Well, you're going to plug our partner's pro shop. Actually, I was going to talk about myself. <laughs> That's why it's so shameless. <laughs> yeah. That's terrible. <laughs> why are you always thinking about yourself? We plug Nick? pro you shop all the time. And they deserve it. <laughs> and I am thinking about Paul always. And he knows that. But no. So uh, we had our vision planning meeting. I told you about the sales summit. Yeah. And we have our annual. We talk a lot about EOS. Yep. And so we do chip and cool management at Hennig, yeah. right? And we make chip conveyors that take the crap out of the machines and make sure the coolant cycling and filters the coolant and stuff. But where we're headed is by the next IMTS, we're going to show a dashboard of where everything's at. Your concentricity, like, do you need to refill your coolant? Do you have a belt jam? Everything that you would want to think about is what we're going to bring to the table. And most people just want a chip conveyor. We want to be there because the convergence is happening more and more. The machine monitoring is going beyond the machine tool and into the peripherals. And so, like, we're not just going to be chasing everyone and lagging behind. Do we have a company full of, like, controls engineers and programmers and software people? Not today, but... You might in the future. What's it going to be like 20 years from now? So, that's so funny that you mentioned that because I just got done giving somebody a tour and we have a gentleman on our staff. So for clients that we sell coolant to, to metalworking coolant to, we have a person on our staff that goes to our client's locations and he will come out with a refractometer. He'll take samples. He'll have those samples tested. And then we'll push a test report back to our clients and let them know where they're at and where they need to make improvements. And the reason we do that is because it's just one less thing that their maintenance department has to do themselves. But we do that manually. We right. send somebody out to our client's location. And See, in the future, and I want so to the future, so I wanna create something where that. you could be like, look, all those sensors are built in. And yeah. when you have problems, not only does it alert you, it alerts whoever sold you the system. Yeah, it alerts there you go. Zanger so they can get somebody. So I there. need to install your chip conveyors with this automation at my clients. Yeah, I got to so think that... of a name. I got to make it real. <laughs> yeah. But there you go. that's the convergence. I mean, yeah. I think that's where things are headed. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. And I think a big part of it is it's just being able to meet your customer's demand, right? When you're bringing in information from, let's say, the IT systems, like raw materials, what your orders are that are coming in, right? You can tie that in with your OT network. So that way, the demand that's out there is influencing what you're doing on the plant floor and vice versa, right? You can send that information back. So that way, hey, we know if something's delayed, for example. Where I think this applies to anyone, whether they're going through a digital transformation or any other transformation within their company, I think an important point is IT and OT live in different worlds a lot of the time, and you need to get them in the same room. If you're so going, IT's information technology, OT's operations technology? Correct. Okay. Yes. And you're right. They definitely don't always communicate. Yes. I mean, one is in the digital world, one is in the physical world, right? Operations technology, automation, you're talking about the stuff on the plant floor. It's about getting two different groups that often have different priorities on their plate together to get that change done. So that way you're not doing finger pointing. You're not saying, hey, this group is blocking this project. IT is blocking this. OT is blocking this. It's about getting the right people in the room to move your company forward. 
Well, guys, I feel like we could talk for hours on this and maybe we just need to have Chris back at a future time. But we're on a tight schedule because we actually are going to a happy hour. Yeah, those hours are more important. The happy ones. And so if we don't (laughs) tie up this, if we don't put a bow on this episode, we need to also record an episode of Manufacturing Happy Hour. So for the Metalworking Nation, this is, I believe, the way that it's going to go. Hopefully, Chris will give me the nod. We're going to produce this episode, of course, on Making Chips. Then we're also going to produce Manufacturing Happy Hour episode on making chips and vice versa so and there's a technical term for that it's the podcast swaparuski oh the swaparuski yeah, okay yeah, okay yeah. gotcha that <laughs> yeah. sounds like a chicago yeah way to say it. that's why we say it because that's where we're at <laughs> so i guess chris in closing give us your very brief so that we can have some beers in our hands soon assessment on cybersecurity in automation Good question. This is an area that I'm starting to delve into more. I'm by no means a cybersecurity expert yet, but I think it's very timely. We're recording this at the end of March, right? This is obviously coming out later, but I came across a cybersecurity grant in the state of Illinois for okay. small to state. mid Yeah, exactly. Like for small to mid-sized manufacturers where if they were making investments in cybersecurity, I don't know what, I think it was between like October 2022 and May 2023, it was saying, hey, this group, I forget the specific group in Illinois was saying, we'll reimburse you for a certain amount of your cybersecurity investments. But one of the conditions is you have to have done an assessment or some type of work to show that we're trying to get, let's say, a gap analysis of where we are in cybersecurity today. We're trying to get a baseline of how secure our facility is, right? And the reason I bring this up is, I think when we talk about cybersecurity and manufacturing, we think of people get scared, right? Because of the consequences. And also they think there's a lot of work that needs to go into it. And it's something that's unachievable for them as a small Just like automation, right? Just like automation, right? But it all starts with getting a baseline of where you are and doing assessments. And I can't remember the name of this specific group. I think I got it, Chris. Is it IMAC? IMAC, yes. That's the group that's doing the incentives. Yeah, so we actually... Oh, they're awesome. We love those people. Going to our happy hour in a couple hours is Ray Zaganto from IMAC, so we could probably tell you all about that. And it looks like February 21st, 2023, CyberSafe Incentive Program for Illinois Small to Mid-Sized Manufacturers was announced by IMAC. So I think that that might be what you're talking about. That's the specific program. And if you look into that program, what they're saying is to be eligible, you've had to have done some sort of gap assessment using the NIST standards, which is basically the gold standard for cybersecurity. My message to like manufacturing leaders is when it comes to getting started with cybersecurity, you need to just look at what you have. You need to take the baseline. There are groups that can help you with that. There are frameworks that can help you with that. We're in a no excuse era now, especially now that there are groups that are saying, hey, we're willing to give you a grant if you've done this type of work, right? That shouldn't be the motivation, but it is a helpful way to get people off of top dead I think that's a great way to wrap this up because whether it's cybersecurity or implementing automation, it starts with doing some initial work and having a standard and checking some initial boxes and being more stable. So if you've done some of the early stabilizing of your process or early compliance things on the cybersecurity, then you've now opened the door for the next level. I love it. Chris, have you ever heard us end the show? Oh, yeah. Do you know how we do that? Do I get to do it? or are You, you get do to, it? yeah. Before yeah. we do that, what do we want to call to action for our audience? Yeah, yeah. See, I'm screwing up our own process, but that's okay. Well, first off, thank you to Chris and yeah, thank you, Chris, for Manufacturing on. Happy Hour. So check that out, Manufacturing Happy Hour, wherever you find a podcast. And then for our podcast, if you like this episode, if you find Lights Out valuable, if you find Making Chips valuable, 
Send it to somebody. Yeah. Like if you're talking about share automation it. in your company, share it. That's our currency. And then when you do that, give us five stars or however many stars you think we're worth, hopefully five, and tell us what you think of the show. You're worth one, but I'm worth 10. Okay, so, so we'll average those out. Yeah, we can do five then. <laughs> Wait, but that's five and a half. My bad. <laughs> I was doing the math over here as well. That is definitely <laughs> five and a half. <laughs> See, I was just good with five. I suck at math. <laughs> Chris, end the show for us, man. How do we do it? All right. Do you want to call the action first? Yeah, go ahead. All right. Hey, I would say back to what I said before, get off a top dead center, right? If you're automating, if you are trying to make your cybersecurity strategy more robust, look at what you got today. Look at the low hanging fruit. Look at the areas where you can take action and start there. Nice. And also, I got another call to action. Sorry. Follow all three of us on LinkedIn because we probably will be doing more of these happy hours in the future, these collaborations with making chips and manufacturing happy hour. And we're going to have so many of our other friends there like Tony Gunn, Andrew Crow, Megan Zimba. The people from IMAC, Paul Van Meter from Pro Shop, Paul Van Meter. People I mean, from your company, people from my yeah, company. Yeah, I mean, like so many great manufacturing leaders all in one place, having some beers, hanging out with each other, and maybe not even necessarily talking about manufacturing, but just getting to know each other and developing relationships. So follow us. You'll be able to get invited Dude, to the next one. Dude, you had me at happy. <laughs> there you go. So if you're not making chips, you're not making money. Bam. <laughs> <laughs>